Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Today, it's great to have Gary Heil on the podcast. Gary is an author, educator, lawyer, consultant, and coach. He's the co-founder of the Center for Innovative Leadership, where he continues to advise leaders in a wide range of industries and cultural issues. And he has served on a number of public and private boards, including Gymboree, Red Envelope, and Front Rage Solutions. He presently, he presently serves as the chairman of the board of Celtech Metals. He is the co-author of a number of best-selling books, including Leadership, including Leadership in the Customer Revolution, One Size Fits All, Maslow and Management, The Leader's New Clothes, Revisiting the Human Side of Enterprise, Douglas McGregor Revisited, Revi- Douglas McGregor Revisited, and <laughs> this, is, this is hard to get through, Douglas McGregor Revisited, and Choose Love, Not Fear, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potential. Gary, it is so great having you on the Psychology Podcast. Thanks, Scott. It's an honor to be here. Can you start off by telling me and, and our audience here a little bit about yourself and your background? Um, well, as you said, I was a, a frustrated coach. I navigated a polar icebreaker. You know, I was a lawyer for a while, did some trial work, and finally came to my senses and went into the uh, lawyer protection program. I'm presently in step eight of recovery. And uh, about 35 years ago, I started. Um, working with businesses that uh, basically work and think that work didn't have to be a four-letter word and that there was so much human potential left on the on the cutting room floor that we could do something about it. And I've spent most of my career working with leaders to try to understand what separates great teams from the merely good ones. I love that. Um, well, I want I want to kind of double click on your love book. You know, kind of sure. really, let's pivot around that for a moment when we talk about what separates good from great leaders. So some people might wonder, well, what the heck does love have to do with building great teams, right? <laughs> have you ever yeah, been asked you, that question before? Like, oh, like really, course. Gary, really? 
Yeah, and then and then I read this really cool book called Transcendence by Scott Kaufman. <laughs> you know that I I wasn't as far off in the mainstream as I, I love thought. It. I, I love it. So I went out actually not looking for that. I went out and I started interviewing, and I did almost 500 interviews with leaders trying to create change, trying to figure out why everybody talked a better game than they played. You know, everybody's got the language. Everybody's heard the speeches. They've read the self-help books. They just weren't making many changes. We spend about, what, $16 billion a year trying to create better leaders, and we're not much better off than we were two decades ago. And I wanted to know why. And so we went and interviewing leaders trying to figure out why. Methodology aside, we found a couple of things we were not surprised but one of the, about. But one of the things I was really surprised about is every time we found a great team, a really good team, not one that just won games or made huge profits, but sustained itself over generations. We found leaders and teams that had a fundamentally different relationship. And, and I didn't really want to find that, but I'd sit there and walk in and you could feel the energy when you walk through the door and you go, what is this? And finally, this crazy football coach in South Carolina and Dabo Sweeney is, is, is talking to us about love. And I think he's a little crazy. And he, he right before the national championship, he says, we're going to win because we, we love each other. And you're like, okay. And you start to think about it. But it reminded me of what a guy named Jan Carlson, who was the leader, uh, managing director of SAS, the Scandinavian Air System uh, airline years ago. He said the first choice every leader needs to make is choose love or choose fear. I thought I got it 30 years ago. I didn't get it. Dabo's talking to me and I'm starting to get it going. Hmm, is that what I'm seeing here is a culture where people really care deeply for each other more than they do just about money. And they, I mean, make no mistake, Dabo cares about winning. So did Carlson, the running airline of the year. But there's something deeper about the way people relate it. And then I was walking down and talking to, um, you know, Alan Mulally one day, um, who ran Ford for a number of years and did the turnaround. And he'd say, yep, got to love them up before you coach them up. <laughs> and I started <laughs> to hear up. this thing. Everybody didn't use the word love, but the way they cared for each other was so fundamentally different than most of the people I interviewed. I couldn't help but stop and think, is that the secret sauce that we're missing? Is that what Douglas McGregor was trying to tell us 70 years ago when he talked about our assumptions about people? And it certainly was what you and I and our, at least some of our mentor and Abe Maslow was saying along the way is that love is a need to be loved and to love. And the people who care deeply for each other like that, why should we be surprised when the teams they create in that image? work harder, play harder, play better for each other. So I started to see it. We didn't choose to write a book like that because that was our our predilection from the beginning. We had to write a book like that because the number of leaders that we met creating great teams and the way they treated each other. Well, what if um, in order to compete, sometimes you, you need to not show so much love? Well, you know, I think we confuse the, the love with this positive thing. But, you know, I love my, uh, you love your kids, but you demand more from them. You love, you love your friends, but you demand more from them. The leaders I met were tough SOBs. They were 
they, they weren't really SOBs, but they were tough, right? I know what you they mean. were. They were like, we take no prisoners. We are not going to lose. You know, Mike McCloskey took a bunch of companies public before his 40th birthday in Silicon Valley. And working with him, I'll tell you, he cared so deeply for the people, but you didn't want to let him down. He set the bar so high. Alan Mulally sets the bar. Davo Sweeney sets the bar high. These guys that love are just like you would treat your kids like love. It's like, we're going to set the bar up there. We expect you to surpass that bar. So it doesn't mean soft. It doesn't mean they live in la-la land. It means they care deeply, so deeply that they think it's almost their moral responsibility to help you reach your potential. And you don't reach your potential by singing Kumbaya on the beach. I mean, wasn't that, I mean, there's no more knowledgeable guy in the world than you about Abe Maslow. Wasn't Maslow frustrated when people talk about self-actualization because he thought people thought that self-actualization was sitting on the beach contemplating their navels, and he knew it was hard work. Yeah, he got frustrated with the students that didn't didn't uh, recognize that it's hard. It takes a lot of hard work to self-actualize, for sure. Although I do enjoy singing Kumbaya on the beach, um, I must say. So I don't want to be a hypocrite. I do enjoy that. <laughs> me, uh, me, me too. I, I only laugh when I think people think they're going to grow and change and create change in companies or on teams without some disruption. Sure. No, absolutely. But how come despite a $50 billion a year in investment and decades of effort, we've made so little progress in developing better leaders? Boy, I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I, I think is it a fair question? <laughs> oh, it's a great, I think it is the question. And I think that for me, when we would do these interviews, you know, we, we, we would find that the biggest impediment, probably for us and what we found, to people making changes to become better is the pressures that exist in the present culture, which doesn't want them to change. I mean, how it goes. You say, well, if we would, we would, we'd go in and we'd say, give me two leaders, living or dead, who most influenced your thinking or you most admired. 20% of their time, it was their mom, their dad, or their little late coach. 80% <laughs> of the time, it was somebody they'd never met. You know, Martin Luther King, you know, George Washington, Mother Teresa. And you'd say, what do you think about Dr. King? What makes him so unique for you? And they give you this list of traits that's probably the same list of traits that everybody's been given for 2,000 years about being empathetic and de decisive at all. And finally, they realized they didn't know Dr. King very well. They're talking about themselves. And so we would say, well, if that's what the syllogism, you think Dr. King was great, you think this is what a great leader is, therefore, you know, are you those things? And they would go, oh, no. And I'd say, why not? Why aren't you those things? And they would go, well, have you met my boss? You know, have you met the people that work for me? You don't understand our, the, the way we do things here. My personal favorite was, can you really make money doing that crap? And you know, people just had a thousand reasons why the existing environment they were in inhibited their ability to be what they knew they should be. Yes. And so I, I, I think most people are not surprised. I mean, they talk about inclusion and autonomous teams, but they don't want to give up power. I mean, it just goes on and on like that. Yeah, you're, you're really calling it as it is. Good for you. Um, well, can we, can we unpack a little more some of the other characteristics of exemplar leaders that you've discovered, um, you know, over your uh, 
long, illustrious career? Oh, sure. Sure. Where would you yeah. like to start? <laughs> you know, pick, just pick one more character, you know, just pick something else. You know, uh, we already talked about love, but what else do you see that, that specifically separates exemplar from good leaders? You know, Scott, I, I think that you have, have really hit the nail on the head in your work. Mm-hmm. I really believe that to my very soul. Um, as I as I page through your book, Transcendence, I think that because everything is about whether we call it engagement or we call it motivation or whatever we call it, um, this willingness of people to give every bit of their discretionary effort to reach closer to their potential and how do we set up the environment to do that, I think is the question for leaders. But I think we answer it poorly. When we go into, I love your experience. I go into executive development programs and I go, well, if if your main job is creating an environment where people are excited to go attain this purpose and they would go, yeah. And I would go, well, what's your theory? What's your hypothesis about how people will choose to give that kind of effort? And I don't think it would be surprising to you. And I wonder if you have a similar reaction, but for most practicing leaders that I would meet, their primary theory of motivation is some version of behavior modification or some version of conditioning based on a world of compensation consultants and the manipulation of rewards and punishments. They wouldn't call them that, they'd call them incentives, but there's so much manipulation. And I think that their mindset about that that's been handed down for generations is a real stumbling block to them becoming the leaders they want to become. And I, I, I just don't know how we get to the other parts of leadership while we still believe that controlling people and manipulating them to get their best is a theory of humanity. That it, it, it just runs contrary, I would think, to the last 80 years of research. Am I, am I off on that, Scott? Yeah, well, you're, I don't, I don't know exactly what, like, if we did a statistical analysis of where all the leaders are at, what would be the most predominant thing today? But I certainly do see it. You know, I I certainly do see that carrot stick mentality is still a, a, a very prominent theory of motivation. And it's, it's very unfortunate and very misguided. And it makes you wonder how so many brilliant people can 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 do so dare I say stupid leadership strategies <laughs> well yeah I mean when you're sitting as a the head of a comp committee in a public company these days mm. the one thing that marches through your office uh, you know is a, a non-ending litany of compensation consultants each telling you how to better manipulate <laughs> the senior managers in the company and I can still remember on one company I was in when um, the compensation was come up. If I only would bribe them slightly differently or incentivize them slightly differently, how much better they were doing. And I said, well, you know, they, they've raised EPS 500% in four years. They've transformed the company. And he said, but they could be better. And so the, I remember the CEO walking by and I called him in and I said, hey, they think that if I just do a little better with the compensation system, you're, you're, and he started laughing, going, and said, I hope you're not paying much for that. It's not like I'm holding back, waiting for you to bribe me with a few more shares. Right. You know, there is this theory that if, and I don't mean all incentive compensation is bad, because that's certainly the research doesn't show that. 
right? But I am saying, if you do this, you will get that manipulations of behavior have a dark side that I don't think we want to face many times. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, something that really uh, we both have in common is this passion for human, uh, the human side of, of business and well, everything really. And uh, one, one characteristic that's a real human thing is create creativity and creative expression, right. And, and activating kind of the unique potential of each of the employees. You see so many leaders talk about creativity, but then they punish creative expression when they see it. So what in the world do you do about that? Boy, that, uh, this bias against creativity that Jen Miller was writing about and other people who have done the studies on over the last 10 years is so real pragmatically, I think, because I don't think we love novel as much as we say we do. I think we love certainty more than we think we do. And the human condition to like people like us and to love certainty is hard to overcome unless we face it. And I don't think we talk about the need for certainty. But, you know, when you see the research that you're much more versed in than I am, but when I read the research around, okay, I get a couple presentations, one's beautifully novel and one's far more buttoned down and certain. And you say, well, I love that novel research. Which person would you hire? I'd take the certain button-down person, not the creative person. And it, and it always doesn't work out so well for the creative mind inside companies that are looking to promote. And if, if the culture doesn't reward the novelty or at least the expression of creatives, then the diversity that we're hiring really doesn't make much difference if we don't want to hear opinions different than we do. And, you know, I don't know what you think, Scott, but I – I'm, I'm amazed by the power of culture to homogenize behavior. And I'm also amazed by how few people in companies can define the word culture or really understand the power inherent in shared assumptions and values. Uh, yeah, preach, preach, preach. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very true. No, I love it. Um, yeah, uh, value, clarity. And and having pro-social values is uh, both those things are are in short supply, you know, in in a lot of these companies. Well, you've used the phrase you've used the phrase motivational or motivated blindness. I think that's an interesting phrase, motivated blindness. Um, why are leaders suffering from this? Well, uh, you know, I think the I think it's sometimes it's been used in a lot of different ways, the way I would use it is that sometimes it's inconvenient to see what's really there, especially when it reflects on you. And I think that we tend to confirmation bias, call it whatever we want to call it. I tend to think we look for the information that confirms what we know. And in the process, we become motivatedly blind to that which is inconvenient for us to know. And I think culture does that to us. I, I think Ed Shine's work is right on when he says the most powerful parts of culture are tacit and unarticulated and operate below a level of consciousness. And so sometimes it's motivated blindness, like we could see it, but we don't. And sometimes I think that the cultural pressures we feel are unarticulated and we don't really know they're happening to us. Ooh. Can you can you elaborate on that a little? Like what's, what would be one kind of example of that? Sure. I think, uh, 
in well, for instance, I, I think if we've talked about even the motivational stuff and the and the compensation or the not looking for the downsides of of uh, incentives and stuff. I think that there's pressure to do more yesterday, what we do more tomorrow of what we did yesterday inside every company, right? Because culture is a stabilizing mechanism, right? So it tends to stabilize collective human effort in ways that are predictable. Mm -hmm. And so you you might be the same person in company A, but then then you move to company B and you become slightly different because the culture homogenizes you, socializes you in some way. And I don't think we always know it's happening to us. I think we sit there and we think we're being independent, rational thinkers, but we start to act like those people around us. I mean, when I spent, uh, I went to one of those service academies as an undergraduate, and, and the funniest part of it is you sit around in one of the academies, and one of the things cadets do all the time is they go, I'm never going to be like that when I grow up, <laughs> right? I'm never going to be like that when I grow up. And next thing you know, if you're around long enough, your classmates all grow up and they exact they act exactly like that. And they don't they would disagree. They would say, no, that didn't happen to me. But if you're standing on the outside, you go, he's acting just the way they did for the last 30 years. And they don't know what's happening. to them. I think that's how culture works. Well, they need someone like you to come in as a consultant and let them know <laughs> the, the cold, hard truth of the matter. Yeah, I think we have a, an innate ability to disregard anything. You know, confirmation bias on that would be be, be pretty tough because yeah. I think culture tends to perpetuate itself. It's, it's why it's so tough to change, right? It's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 like a water to fish. Yeah, sometimes our culture is we take it for granted and like we don't realize there could be any other different kind of environment. Yeah. No, and, and, and you know, you, you kind of laugh because you're going, yeah, and, and you, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, that our bias against creative thought or creative action, you, you know, you can see how the existing culture wants to do more of what it did yesterday. And the number, number of companies that start out and say, well, let's try that. Hmm. And then the innovator's dilemma happens and resources get a little tight. And the first thing we kill is the new thing in favor of the old thing. Yeah, and big big companies don't innovate very effectively for a thousand reasons, not the least of which is the existing culture, right? Yeah. Well, let's talk about another aspect of the culture. Um, you've talked in your work about uh, democratization. I I I mean, I was scared to have to say that whole word out loud. Uh, <laughs> but what is the effect of democratization on leadership? Well, I you know I think that this idea of the one trend in studying leadership all the years that I've been looking at it, uh, which you can tell since Lincoln was president to take a look <laughs> at my hair, right? Um, Stop it. Is there's been a shift in power from those that used to have all the power to people who didn't used to have power, mm. right? And that technological shift happened in every generation, right? Uh, the printing press was novel at one time and allowed people to to coalesce around an idea that could overthrow a government or TV and Radio Free Europe or 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 the media bringing down part of the Iron Curtain or fomenting revolution and now you know with 
Twitter and Facebook and social media, you see the Arab Spring and you see presidents of universities being fired over a weekend because, you know, one fraternity does one thing on a bus, it goes viral and they can bring a president of a university or a CEO to their knees almost overnight because the technology allows the power to shift to those who never used to have power. And you can see it in the stock market, you know, when when a group of crowdsources their buying techniques and brings hedge managers hedge, to their knees in, in terms of their short sales. I mean, we, we have a thousand things and experiences where the technology has allowed people to come together and foment a power, a power shift. And that's what I think we mean by democratization is it it spreads out the power. It doesn't do it in the short term, but over some period of time, the tenure for CEOs is reduced to like three and a half years now. Wow. The power has sh- the power shifted somewhat. And um, it's not necessarily day to day that I'm not saying CEOs are powerless or co- head coaches are powerless. But I mean, if you look at athletics, college athletics, um, coaches used to do a lot of things that they don't get away with today very easily. Mm-hmm. And the old the old guard wouldn't survive very much today. Maybe they survived too long. I mean, the latest research would show it's three times more likely to be abused in a college D1 college program than in a business. But is that, is that right? Yeah. You know, you know, Tepper did this study at Ohio State and they showed that with a goal study that the NCAA did that it's kind of the perfect storm when you have powerful coaches who hold scholarships over people's heads. And when the student athlete has no ability to fight back without losing their scholarship, they're ripe for some of the incivility. I thought when I read that research, I think it said 52% of D1 college athletes uh, suffer from anxiety or depression. That's really sad. Um, I mean, a lot of college students in general are, are suffering from anxiety and depression right now. The, the rates are pretty high. Boy, without, especially as they're separated sitting on Zoom all day, right? Yeah, I, I'm totally stressed out by Zoom. <laughs> I want to, <laughs> I want to, you know, just uh, talk to people in, in uh, their, their real particles, not their simulated particles. Yeah, we, I, I, I think we, I think we miss a lot. Don't you think in your work, I mean, you did, you've done, an extraordinary amount of work on the connectedness issue and the love issue as it applies to to our basic needs as people. Mm. That has to be quite interesting to you, isn't it? About, about this idea of Very how we are how we are suffering from this lack of connection and belongingness being so isolated. I am very interested in that and its effect among uh, young people today, particularly. I mean, you have written your set just to turn the the question back on you a second. You know, how has the millennial generation, this millennial generation, changed the mm-hmm. way leadership and organizations work? Do you see a shift there? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really a great question because it's not simple, right? No. Um, they're people, and so human needs, you know, um, are human needs, and 
you know, you and I both would agree that Maslow never wanted to make a hierarchy or a triangle out of human needs. Your <laughs> version, your version of those needs is brilliant about how to how to look at those. But I but I think, as you say, we're working on growth levels and, and our subsistence levels simultaneously all the time. And I think that in, because of the absence of the ability to to not only connect but to trust that there's going to be more there, that I think millennials have a great BS detector to realize yeah. that the here and now matters. Yeah. And they want it now. Yeah. And so they sacrifice less on the subsistence or the deficit level, I think, than some of us might have been hooked there and need less. They're used to having that taken care of. And they want an opportunity to learn and grow with no BS. And I think that's very difficult in a world that is used to controlling people based on um, techniques that are more fear-based than growth-based. Well, that was very well said. That was very well said. Um, you know, we had to, it was funny in, in, in Jimboree when it was still alive, when before we sold it to Bank Capital. I think one of the things that, that Matt McCauley was doing, which I thought was brilliant, is we had to actually go out and we, we wanted to create much more involvement with our teams, um, with charities and kids and, and things. A, because we, we were a group dedicated to those things, but also because our employees were challenging us to do so. The millennial group in the Bay Area where Jimboree was headquartered were having none of us ignoring that for any length of time. The need to be part of something bigger than themselves was so apparent to all of us. Mm. And for most of us, that seemed like a change from the past. Mm. Well, you know, you've made some interesting arguments about uh, about choosing love, not only over fear, but even over competence. I mean, your argument's really interesting. You've argued that warmth should come before competence and not saying choosing one or the other that I shouldn't have framed it that way, but just in terms of what order do you do you do you show it first? You know, oh, geez, I. I, I... I, I would never try to make that distinction, really, Scott. I think the argument I would make is that there are a lot of really brilliant, competent teams that fail. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I've played on some of them. I've worked with some of them. And there are a lot of really brilliant people who come together collectively where one and one equals one half. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And so – and. I've played on a few teams and worked with a, a number of teams where one and one equals about six. Right. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm a pragmatist. I think we need competence. I think we need a mindset that's about exploring the unknown and growth. I think those things are really important, but I also think that we ignore the idea that the collective has its own identity and that if we have yeah. a collective with no identity, then we're in trouble. There, there's a really interesting piece of research that was done a few years ago, which says that if we get more and more talent, but don't have a central sense of purpose for which we're acting, the more talent we have, the more disruptive it can become, and the worse our results might be. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I don't want talent. If I'm out recruiting, 
Give me the talent. But I think it's both. I want the most talented team on the universe. I want the most diverse team on the universe. But I think I need a collective that is more the belief in every individual that we can only succeed individually if the collective succeeds. So I, I don't think I could put them in a hierarchy. Very I, I interesting. Kind of want it all. Yeah, very interesting that you equated competence with talent, because in my model I differentiate them. You know yeah, that, you the, that people. Yeah, I have this like four C model where competence is different than capacity. Uh, you know, or like talent. You know, the the how quick you learn something. A lot of people may seem untalented, but through hard work and even love, dare I say, um, show <laughs> show eventually show very high levels of competence. Um, that, and we shouldn't count them out. So anyway, that's just my own little sort of theory. <laughs> well, no, I think that I think that's uh, uh, far more distinctive than the way I was probably inartfully using the words in those terms. Because when you separate it that way, it makes perfect sense, right? I need capacity and present capability, right? Yeah. And so, and so I, I, I think that your way of saying it makes makes it much more actionable, actually, than the way I was saying it. What do we disagree on then? Let's find something we disagree on. Uh, tell me. We're, I don't know. I'm I, I can't. I have yet to find find something. We we both nerd out over uh, Douglas McGregor and uh, Abraham Maslow and how we want to kind of bring their um, work more to the fold. Um, I don't know. I, I think it'll be, it's going to be difficult to find something we disagree on. But can we talk about Douglas McGregor a little bit? Since I just kind of mentioned that name. Yeah, absolutely. You've done a beautiful job uh, resurrecting him, and uh, re and revisiting, revisiting, revisiting him. So, what do you think? You know, he was so frustrated about. I know we were talking beforehand, uh, and you said that he died frustrated that that he said that it was too complicated to change human motivation um, for the higher to to strive for the higher ceilings. But what what you know what what do you what do you make of McGregor there? Um. I, I guess what I know of McGregor, right, because he died in 61 or 62, mm. what I know mostly about McGregor, I learned from Warren Bennis, who worked for Doug McGregor and Abe Maslow at the yeah. time as a young man. And I wrote this book with, with Warren, who is a seminal person in my thought process, because he would explain some of those things. And what I thought was intriguing to, to me about what I had learned or, you know, secondhand give it, but, but about McGregor is when he postulated theory X and theory Y, he believed that, that the way we treated people weren't just uh, t the tactics we believed in, but had more to do with the way we viewed human beings as either willing to accept responsibility, willing, full of life and wanting to do it differently. Right. Or, more like machine-like, at rest, and they needed to be incentivized or jump-started, right? And I think McGregor, although he didn't talk a lot about his belief in theory why, the belief that people have, ordinary people are capable of great things, mm -hmm. I think that's the way his mindset went. And um, what he was frustrated by is he was getting trying to get people to look in the mirror at their assumptions, Right. And I think that what people did at the time was they saw theory X and theory Y and started to talk out about them like they were leadership styles, 
Mm-hmm. Like there's a theory X leader and a theory Y leader. And he's like, no, I'm not talking about that. They're not styles. They're just ways to test your assumptions about people. And he couldn't get people to think deeply about looking in the mirror and what do you really believe about human beings? Because people wanted a simple magic pill that they could take, adopt a style and make their workplaces hugely more productive. So my understanding of it in those days was that, that he was frustrated because he wanted people to think deeply about the nature of human beings and they wanted a, a contingency look at leadership styles. Well, I'm, I'm even in this generation, I'm frustrated by that. <laughs> same, that same thing. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, and I think, I think Maslow in the beginning was, it was really funny because as, as you write about it in your book and, and we both know Maslow went out with Andy Kay at K pro computers for a summer and dictated you psyche and management. But in your psyche and management, there's a chapter as it became Maslow and management. There's a there's there's a chapter that, that's written about 34 ideas that if you want more enlightened leadership or more enlightened management, here are 34 ways you got to think differently. And yeah. that was Maslow's missile at McGregor saying, Doug, if you really think you can be more enlightened, you're going to have to do these 34 things differently, to which I think they were in absolutely. Um, uh, you know, argumentative agreement that, <laughs> that, you know, here was the psychologist in Maslow and the organizational theorist in McGregor coming to the same conclusion at the same time. Yeah. I, I know they had great affection for each other. Uh, well, McGregor, you know, I, I have a letter from McGregor to Maslow that was uh, very, very kind, very kind. Um, yeah. I mean, Ma- Maslow called that theory Z in that chapter, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, it is kind of like a, a bit of a cheeky thing to do because of McGregor's theory X and Y. He said he's not, we're not complete. <laughs> we, need to theory, we need to get to theory Z, which is real enlightened leadership and, uh, and transcendent, not just self-actualizing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's where the, the beauty of your title to your book is so big. And, you know, in reading through yours, and I wasn't even aware until the last year or so that, you know, Maslow had combined his efforts with Viktor Frankl and others, yeah. totally, totally focused on the idea of transcendence. And and yeah. I, I knew he had thought about theory Z and that he thought that thinking about individuals was was not where he wanted to be at the end of his life because we do everything in groups and teams and collectives. And he said, being part of something bigger than yourself. Um, but there was a group of people whose sole focus in life became that. And I still not sure we still understand that. Yeah. You know, if you see one more CEO stand up at a conference and go, the reason we exist is shareholder value. And <laughs> every, everybody, everybody in the audience is like, really? Turns me on. That's, that's our purpose. <laughs> yeah. And or we, we write a purpose that sounds like everybody else's, right? I know. I, I, I think we still don't quite get that for people to find true meaning in what they're doing, it's, it's not only personal, but it's emotionally yeah. engaging. Yeah. No, I mean, you keep, you keep coming back and returning to the theme about human, the human side of it. And it's, uh, it, why are why, people need to listen <laughs> to this? 
you know, it's, 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 it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, power, I mean, I think maybe if there's one thing you, um, guys who really do the research and it probably agree over a hundred years is that power tends to corrupt mm. study after study. And maybe Lord Acton was right way back then. And as long as power corrupts and people don't share power voluntarily, that isn't, um, you know, power and control, the opposite of the autonomy-based enlightenment that, you know, we all keep writing about. Yeah, no, very well said. There's the power paradox that Dr. Keltner talks about, where the very traits that get someone the power to begin with are the things that eventually cause their downfall once they've uh, achieved power and then become you know, uh, they, they, you know, they, they completely, uh, it goes to their head, you know, like, you know, the, you know, they, the thing that gave them power was usually, was usually love. Mm -hmm. And then when they get the power, they forget about that, <laughs> about those traits. But anyway, <sighs> humans, humans are messy. <laughs> what is, what is the quiz you cannot fail? So, um, I want to take that one. Yeah. Um, so the quiz you can't fail uh, was a uh, a quiz set up um, by a professor emeritus at Michigan State years ago who had come after Joe Scanlon. And when when um, Doug McGregor brought Joe Scanlon, the factory worker, to MIT to be a lecturer, hmm. right? Um, his protege goes out and he starts trying to create change in factories in the United States. And he starts failing. Mm. He starts going, hmm, I'm trying to create change. But you know how it goes. People say, yeah, yeah, we want to change. And then two years later, they're still saying they want to change. There's no change. So he got frustrated. So the origin of the original term, quiz you can't fail, is he would go in to, to companies and he would give them the quiz and he would say, do you know where you want to be different? Is there a compelling reason for you to do it? Do you think you can make it happen? And if you did, is there enough in it for you to want to commit? Four simple questions about. And if people answered no to any one of the four, he would say, you're probably a really good company and want to change, but I don't have time in my life to work with you to be a scandal-like company because you're not ready. And so he believed that readiness for change became these questions that if you know where you want to go that's different from where you are you have a compelling reason to want to do it you believe there's it's possible that this group can do it and you'll be better off for having done it there's a fighting chance you can create the kind of changes you want so the quiz you can't fail was his test his litmus test originally for whether he would take them as a client what i found interesting was it's also a great test for are you ready to create change inside a company? Sort nice. of, are you unfrozen in a way? Because if you know where you want to go and you're really committed and there's a compelling reason to do it and you think you can do it, you have confidence and you're going to be better off, you have a fighting chance. I like that reframing. Yeah, and so the guy's name was Carl Frost, right? Carl Frost, and I want to look, look up that cat, yeah. Yeah, he, he uh, Professor Meredith, I think he's maybe not with us at this point, at yeah. Michigan State. And he was um, instrumental in spreading Scanlon-like 
ideas throughout the manufacturing sector of the U.S., you know, 50 years ago or so. Yeah, he passed away in 2009. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Wow, wow. This is a book, Changing Forever. The well, I like that. The well-kept secrets of America's leading companies. Have you read that book? Uh, no, I read. I read a different one that he, he actually wrote earlier mm. when he started lamenting, trying to create change, and meeting the uh, the resistance that was seems mm. inevitable. Thanks for introducing me to to him. You, you've introduced me to a lot of really cool people since I've uh, well. Not personally, inter- it, it, you know, you've introduced me to some dead people, but uh, they're really cool. <laughs> Usually, be cut. You know what I mean? Though. I'm good you know with what the I mean? Dead people, yeah, yeah I'm good yeah. with them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? You introduced me to them, but not directly. Um, okay, <laughs> I'm being a dork. Okay, uh, so how much better might people perform if leaders were to believe that ordinary people are capable of greatness? You've written a little bit about this, and I just loved what you've written about it. I don't know how much potential we have in us, but it is amazing to me when I find these teams. I mean, I found this wrestling coach in Southern California, Powang, who took over a wrestling program 30 years ago, and he thought he got a great job. He was going to be the head wrestling coach. And the only problem is he showed up for work, and they didn't have a wrestling team. And (laughs) And they said, well, you know, we don't have a wrestling team and we don't have a history of wrestling, but you can be the wrestling coach if you can find wrestlers. Mm. So he asked to do freshman PE and he'd go around freshman PE and he'd pick out people and say, Hey, you want to wrestle? <laughs> and within, within two years, he won the, two the years? district championship district championship in San Diego. And he's won the state championship in wrestling a number of times. I'm not sure the exact number. And they built a building for him 30 years later. And what's interesting at the end of every year, I'm looking in his files and he writes love letters to every one of his wrestlers, not about wrestling, but about how grateful he was that they would let him coach them. But what he took was that people who had never wrestled before and within three years made up state champions. And you go, how could you tell? He says, I never got the best athletes. Hmm. He says, I would go up to LA and they had these big players and football players who would wrestle. And I never did. He says, these people had to work hard, but it's amazing what people can do. If they find a passion and want to make it happen. And, you know, when I'll never forget the first day I I, I went to Marysville when they were building Hondas 20 years ago in Ohio. And you watch them and you watch them build cars. And these were people that had never done it before. And they were building world class cars as well as they did in Japan. And 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 you look at look at the experience that that Toyota had with Numi in Northern California when they took over the, with a joint venture with GM and the same workers who were the wor- one of the worst GM plants in the country became one of the best um, joint venture plants with the same employees doing it. And you go, you need a certain amount of talent, but a certain amount of that is, is desire to get better and willingness to take feedback and willingness to grow and willingness to be a part of a team bigger than yourself in which you commit to it. And I don't think teams without talent win a lot of championships, Mm. but I think there are a lot of good players who can become great players in the right environment. And I I think McGregor wrote 
years ago. He wrote that the biggest waste in, in, in his world was the waste of human potential he witnessed as he traveled from company to company. And you go into a company today and you say, how much more do you think you could do if we could change the environments of people? have a zillion things or even we used to do an experiment where we go in and we'd say no more money no more resources no reorganization how many ideas do you have you could you that you could improve what you deliver to a customer or make the delivery less expensive not changing a whole lot not talking about total quality just you you're in your control and they on average had 15 ideas per person in 15 minutes and you say, why haven't you done anything with these? And, you know, you know, well, it's not my job. I told them once, you know, there's a thousand excuses why they don't do it. But when you talk to people and sit down for 15 minutes, and I don't know how to quantify this exactly, Scott, but when you talk to them for 15 minutes over a couple year period in different companies and everybody's got a number of ideas, let's even say that 80% of them are dumb ideas. If we just took the 20% of them, how much better would they be? And if they felt like they accomplished something, how much more would they be willing to do tomorrow? I, I don't think we're using half of the human potential in most teams. Maybe that's a wrong number. I have no way of quantifying it, but you must see it in your work around that if it's people were in the right environment, it's a lot, right? So can you go like... Can you bypass the good route? Can you go from like bad to great? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, it's it's funny. You, you know, I didn't talk to Jim about that when he wrote from good to great, but it's mm. we should do that. But it's hard to take, you know, somebody who's totally turned off and make them turned on in the same situation because there's a reason why they're turned off. Mm. But before I would say you can't, I mean, I think I've had a number of experiences in companies where people who are turned off and part of that 17% who come to work every day undermining the company mm. and you give them a new job with real responsibility and they become all stars. Really? I think because, all of us have seen that. Because they're really like, they feel a great, greater sense of identity and motivation and purpose. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think there I don't think there are unmotivated people. There's a lot of unmotivated yeah. workers. But yeah. at five o'clock when they leave work, they become the head of the Cub Scouts or the Little League team. Mm -hmm. And some of them do extraordinary things. If 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 there was some opportunity worth challenging their effort in their mind, they have extraordinary capabilities. But potentially a lot of jobs. What did Maslow say? You know, any job not worth doing is certainly not worth doing well. Yeah. What's not worth doing is not worth doing well. Yeah. 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 And so yeah. how many jobs have we organized in ways that we wouldn't want the job for a human being? Because the training costs would be lower or, yeah. you know, I, I still, I, I, I remember walking into a retail outlet years ago when it came, hit me in the face. I walked in and I was returning two pair of shoes for my son at the time. And I wanted to get a pair of the right size. And I have to wait 20 minutes for a $20 return till the supervisor comes and signs the slip and gives him the approval to do the exchange for $20. She comes, she signs it, she's, the supervisor's walking away and I'm, I yell at her, I'm going, hey ma'am, would you come say hi? I waited 20 minutes for the experience. You know, I was a little frustrated. And I look at this probably 19 year old kid 
serving me. And I said, I, what I really said is that pisses me off, you know? And he yelled at me, Scott, he flat out yelled at me. This 19 year old looks at me and he goes, pisses you off. How many times a day do you have to do it? I'm the one that ought to be pissed, not you. And he was so right. I was laughing going, you know, he's right. God, he's so right. That how would you like to have a job which forces you to, you know, get a signature that they don't even look at when they sign for a $20 return? I'd almost feel as bad as going to one of those customer service seminars where they tell you how to greet people. Right. When you say hello, say it this way. And I'm just thinking the people in that class are going, they don't think I'm even capable of saying hello. Mm. Right. I mean, when we're so controlling as we tell people how to say hi. Yes. And then we say, why aren't they turned on? Mm -hmm. Because you just know that guy for the shoes, some supervisors away at a two day training program trying to figure out how to motivate it. Is that a little too cynical? Is that a little too cynical? No, no, it's not, (laughs) not cynical enough. It's not cynical enough. Uh, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, Gary, I just, I want to thank you so much for being on my podcast today. And, um, and I'm so glad that, uh, we could finally, I could have a chance to showcase some of your really timely and important ideas about, uh, transforming, uh, the workplace and, uh, and reconceptualizing leadership. So thank you, Gary. Well, hey, Scott, thank you. And, um, I need to thank you. Uh, I think that the work that you're doing with Transcendence and the new center that you're creating and all the things that you're doing to help move all of us to think in a more disciplined manner about creating transcendence is going to add to the the body of work for for a long time to come. So I, I thank you and, you know, I appreciate all that you do. Means a lot to me. Thanks, Gary. Take care, Scott. Thanks for having me. You too. That was that was splendid. I can't wait to talk to you on uh, your podcast uh, soon as well. That'll be a hoot. Hell, um, I can't wait. Yeah, that I yeah. get to ask. That I get to reflect the questions back and find out yeah. what I really should have said. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Um, this this was really great. Really great interview. Uh, have a great day, Gary. Thanks, Scott. See you soon. See you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P dot com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.